On this episode of the London Lyceum, we talk with Dr. James Eglinton about the great theologian, Dr. Herman Bavink. We talk to him about just who is he? And then we talk to him about what is Bavink's thought on philosophy, potentially on analytic theology if he lived today. What are his thoughts on worldview? What are his most important and unique contributions, particularly the idea of a critical friend or a critical friendship? I think the episode is fantastic. And as always, if you have thoughts about the episode specifically or ideas or requests for the show in general, you can hit us up, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or you can contact us at our website, thelondonlyceum.com. Now for the only analytic Baptist and confessional podcast on the planet, we think this one's going to get you thinking. I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum. We are a podcast that's devoted to thinking, but we don't want to just think in general, we want to think well, and we think doing that needs a culture of charity, curiosity, uh, critical thinking, and cheerful confessionalism. We have the cheerful confessionalism part because we like the great big reformed confessions, and we want to be cheerful about it where we, we, we grab hold to this, but we're not jerks about it. So we, we want to create this climate that is just a positive, healthy forum for discussing ideas in a way that's respectful of others' opinions. And all that. So I'm one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak. And I'm your co-host, Brandon Askew. And today we have the distinct pleasure of introducing you to Dr. James Eglinton. I, I imagine a good chunk of our listeners are familiar with him because Herman Bavink here in the States anyway is, especially in the online pseudo-reformed world, is is really hot. I, I think of Zoolander. This is a really crude illustration. <laughs> but what is it? Uh, Will Farrell, I think it is, who's like, you know, Hansel, he's so hot right now. I feel like that's exactly what's going on with Herman Bavink, where he is just, he, he's the big deal right now. He's the theologian everybody wants to talk about, think about, and I think for good reason. So we, we've brought on Dr. Eglinton. He, you, I can tell you some other podcasts he's done to check out, but I think he has really done I don't know if it's just you, but I feel like you have been an impetus for creating this wider interest in this theologian who, growing up, I had never heard of him. Going, to, I went to you know university, majored in Bible, had never heard of him. And then suddenly, there's all these resources on him, and, I, and I'm reading him, and I'm finding huge benefit in my own life. So I'm excited to talk to you about him. Um, I don't know where I was going with that other than just saying Bob Banks really cool and we have <laughs> the expert on it. So Dr. Elkins, why don't you just, for those who don't know you, give us a little bit of an introduction about yourself. Think short, like here's who I am, here's where I teach type thing and anything else you want to talk about before you just tell us what got you into Bob Inc. Why, why him? Why study him? Sure. Thank you so much. It's great to talk with you guys. Um, I loved your introduction to the podcast and the rationale behind why why and how you do this. And I say amen to all of that. That's exactly how we need to be talking about theological ideas. Um, and also, I love the Zoolander link as well. It's, it's a great film. And <laughs> yeah, the idea of Bavink as Hansel, you know, making his way down the runway so hot right now is, <laughs> is on point. So um, so my name is James Eglinton. I teach at the University of Edinburgh. I'm a senior lecturer here in Reformed Theology. So I guess the U.S. equivalent would be associate professor. I've been teaching here for seven years. Um, before that, I was in the Netherlands. I was there for three years working as a postdoc in Kampen, which is where Herman Bavink was a professor for a couple of decades. Uh, before that, I did my PhD here in Edinburgh on Bavink, and I worked as the assistant pastor of a church while I was doing my PhD. 
uh, right in the middle of Edinburgh, quite a busy um, student church. And uh, before that, I went to seminary also here in Edinburgh. That's where I first started to read Bavinck. Uh, and before that, way, we're getting way back into the mist of time, but I was a law, a law student in Aberdeen. Um, so I, I grew up in Scotland. I, I'm, I'm Scottish, as you can tell by my accent. So maybe we can just begin with like a, a brief sketch on, on who Bavinck is. Um, as Jordan mentioned, you know, a lot of our listeners, the the seminary students and the pastors, they're going to be familiar with Bavinck. They know who he is. They probably have his mm-hmm. Reformed dogmatics on their bookshelves and have never read them, all that kind of stuff. But there are, you know, some folks, um, you know, maybe that we have a lot of just Southern Baptist listeners who are just, you know, sitting in the pew. You know, they, they've never heard of Bavinck. They don't know who he is. So maybe mm-hmm. situate him in his, let's begin with like a historical and theological context where was he born? When was he born? Was he born into a Christian family? And um, just tell us a little bit about those things. And yeah. I, before you answer that, I, I do want to plug your your biography. So if you don't know, he has a critical biography of Dr. Herman Bavink, and I think it's fantastic. I, I'm only halfway through, so I can't give you the final verdict, but I think it's just delightful. And if you don't have a copy, go get yourself a copy. I I really can't recommend it enough. I think it's fascinating. I think it's fantastic. So go buy yourself a copy if you haven't already. Now now you can answer Thanks. the question. Sorry. <laughs> so, you know, you've already drawn the Zoolander link. So, you know, if Bavink himself is Hansel, um, I think that the biography is intended to be Magnum. You know, the line in Zoolander, I've been working on Magnum for the last eight or nine years. Um, you got to tame the beast before you let it out of his cage. So I've been trying to do that, actually. So try and make Bavink, get Bavink ready for the runway in the world. Uh, so... So he was he was Dutch in the first place, uh, from the Netherlands. He was born in the middle of the 19th century in 1854, and he lived until 1921. So that takes us up into, you know, for a lot of us, the era of our grand, grandparents or great-grandparents. So not too long ago, he died after the First World War. Um, so the world that he was born into and then the world that he left behind when he died were really different places. Um, so you're thinking about modernization, the emergence of an industrialized economy, a knowledge-based economy as well, a world where you didn't just inherit what you would be in the world from your father and his father and his father, but where you actually would choose what you wanted to become. And you would need a lot of education to become whatever you were going to be in the world. So he came from a really interesting social context where lots of things are changing. He also came from a context where democracy was a brand new thing. Um, so, you know, we think of the Netherlands now as, if you know much about it at all, you tend to think of an extremely liberal country where people are exceptionally free to live and think and do whatever they want. Um, but the Netherlands that his parents had grown up in, well, his dad was from Germany originally, but emigrated to the Netherlands. His mom was from the Netherlands. Um, it was a country that was ruled by an authoritarian monarch and it, was, it wasn't it was democratic yet. Um, so it was a country where there, there wasn't full religious freedom, for example. So you asked if he was born into a Christian family. Uh, he was, his dad was a pastor, but his dad was a pastor in a church that had seceded from the mainstream Dutch Reformed Church um, over theological liberalism and state control. And they seceded at a time when it was actually illegal to do so. So they were persecuted by their own states. Um, they were some of the last people in, in Europe to be dragooned. So that was this practice where the state would station really rowdy, drunken soldiers in your home to be as disruptive a presence as possible. And, um, and then they would also, 
um, charge you for the soldiers' wages while they were ruining your family life. Uh, so the state would um, send the police to interrupt church services. The pastors would be beaten up, imprisoned, fined. Um, so there was they, they, his family was a really interesting one. They came from this clandestine church, an illegal underground church in a non-democratic country with an authoritarian leader. So when you start to hear about that context, um, it's really interesting because for us, you know, when we hear that kind of a story, I think our minds tend to go much further east rather than than Western Europe. So we think of, you know, North Korea or, or China or those kinds of contexts. Um, so Bavink was a Christian from Western Europe, but from a context that was really alien to us in terms of his family background and much more familiar to what you would find um, outside of the Western world now. Um, but that all changed shortly before he was born. So there was a democratic revolution um, a few years before he was born. So his parents had to learn how to navigate social freedom and a, and a completely new kind of society where you could vote for your um, your leaders or where you could um, worship freely. Um, you didn't have to go to the church that the state told you to go to. And your kids could go to school all of a sudden if you were from this church. So you weren't outcasts anymore. Um, so I think that's part of what makes his family story so interesting as well, because he's a really smart, thoughtful Christian, the son of a very engaged um, and effective pastor as well, who's had to pastor in two completely different countries, even though without leaving the same you know borders or anything like that, just the country changes so much in the middle of his time as a pastor. So how are you going to raise your children if you're in that kind of a context? So that kind of sets us up for Herman Bavink's life. So he's the son of parents, a pastor and a pastor's wife, trying to um, raise their children in a brand new country, in effect, a brand new social context where there are all kinds of opportunities available. Um, and they're a very ambitious family. They're part of the new middle class and they're very ambitious for what their kids can achieve whilst also being ambitious spiritually as well and thinking that their kids can hold on to their faith and not be outsiders in society. So they're a really interesting mix as a family of piety, ambition, social interaction, um, but also being theologically very conservative. So they're this fascinating blend of all of those things. Um, so Herman then is one of their sons, um, and he goes on to become a pastor, um, a theology professor, a member of parliament. Uh, he wrote one of the great works of Christian theology in the 20th century, the Reform Dogmatics. Uh, so he lives a really, really fascinating life and uh, across decades where the world changes so much around him. If you think of the middle of the 20th century where you know, the steam engine is relatively new, where industrialization is just really, it's going into the it's second phase, but um, it's changing everything in the world around you. And then you get into the 20th century where um, Christendom really crumbles uh, all around you if you're in the Western world, at least in Western Europe as well. So he's just a, such a fascinating figure, fascinating as a theologian, but also the, the wider life. And that's why I wanted to try and write a biography of him. That's awesome. So I've got, I mean, we've got a set of questions that I'd like to talk to and ask you about, just pick your brain on. So one of the things that we like to focus on in the podcast that we do here is just analytic theology in general, which in a lot of ways just means utilizing philosophy. How did he particularly think of the role of philosophy when it comes to theology? Because when I read him, he seems very well educated on these things. He's not a traditional systematic theologian that's just completely ignorant of all the debates and discussions that are going on there. He's he's well-educated there. So what does he think about philosophy in general and its relation to theology? And I know you don't have expertise in this area, so you can punt the question to the extent that you want to. Mm -hmm. But as far as analytic theology has grown into a, a theological movement over the last 20 to 30 years, 
do you think Bavink would have an affinity for that type of theology and that type of mode? Would he have critiques of it? Um, just to the best of your knowledge, I think that would be mm. interesting thoughts. Yeah, he was exceptionally well-read um, across lots of disciplines in his own day. Um, and that's part of what makes him so interesting. And he has this really wholesome commitment to representing other thinkers honestly, accurately, and fairly, and has a fascinating life in relation to that as well, because so many of the people that he writes about um, are actually personal acquaintances and friends. So um, he, he he really tries hard not to do straw men, and he tries to represent other people and their ideas really well. And that comes across then, and just how surprisingly well-read he is in lots of different areas. And he really tries hard to keep abreast of all kinds of developments in the sciences and philosophy and politics and Islamic studies. I mean, it, it just goes on and on. Um, so within that kind of a context, then, what relationship does philosophy have to theology for Bavink? Well, for Bavink, philosophy is useful to theology, but theology isn't dependent on any one particular school of, of philosophy or approach to philosophy in the first place but it's nonetheless free to make to make use of them and their the, the best contributions they can make so bavink is you could look at him as a bit of a magpie um, who believes that everything that's silver and that shines does so because it's god's or you know someone who sees all truth as god's truth and because of that who feels at liberty to um to grasp truth wherever he finds it um, and to take it up and put it in service of a, of a bigger theological agenda. Um, so if you see elements of his thought in terms of philosophy that are quite platonic, other parts that are more Aristotelian in spirit. Um, I think some of the best work that sets out this, the kind of mindset that he has with this is by two of my former PhD students, both really accomplished theologians in their own right, um, Corey Brock and Grace Utanto. And they wrote a superb article in the Scottish Journal of Theology on Bavink's eclectic method, or his principled theological eclecticism. That's very helpful in just getting under Bavink's skin and understanding what he does um, with, well, and their focus is primarily on different theological schools of thoughts um, where Bavink will... Um, grasp certain ideas and then weave them into his project, but without necessarily endorsing the whole the kind of bigger project that the other um that the other figure represents. And I think what they get across very well in that article is that Bavink's not really an opportunist. Rather he has a particular kind of epistemology that makes him a principled eclecticist. So that's a really superb piece of work to to get into um, if you're interested in this. So and he does this with philosophy as well. Um, where if he finds truth there, then he's happy to take that up into uh, his theological project. What would he make of analytic um, theology as someone that we might think of in more you know, himself in more conventional dogmatic the theology terms? I think in the first place, he would want to avoid a lot of the straw men um, caricatures that you do find among some theologians who aren't sympathetic to analytic theology, like analytic theologians don't care about the history of ideas, and they develop all of these projects in complete abstraction. Um, I think that is, uh, you know, I mean, it's something that I've, I've watched analytic uh, 
theologians respond to and demonstrate that they do care about the historical development of ideas. So I think Bavinck wouldn't be in the kind of um, you know rash to judge camp. He would really want to hear them out in the first place. Um, and I think that he would find a certain benefit in the project. Um, I suspect probably without um, seeing analytic theology as a thing that, you know, that the future of theology depends on as a life or death kind of matter. That's just not Bavinck's um, way of operating or way of approaching developments in theological traditions. But I think he would be he would be really charitable and open to it and want to learn from it. And, um, you know, Bavinck's quite a conservative thinker um, in terms of not wanting to make rash judgments, but in being conservative in that sense in his instincts, that doesn't mean that he was against progress. Um, he was conservative in personality and wanting to assess um, new things really carefully before he signs on the dotted line. So I think if he were around today, he'd probably be listening really attentively to you know, Oliver Crisp and, and all of those guys and um, mm. doing it appreciatively, um, but maybe not coming out all guns blazing. Well, he wouldn't come out all guns blazing against it, I don't think, because that's just not the kind of character he was, but not um, you know, identifying himself as this is my primary thing. Uh, um, yeah. So I, I believe his his book, Christian Worldview, was just recently translated into English. Uh, I'm curious, you know, when Bob Inc. talks about worldview, maybe help us understand what he means by that, because that's a word that gets thrown around a lot in, mm. in discourse today, you know, Christian worldview, this and that. And um, does he, is he using it in, a same, in the same way or a similar way, or does he mean something totally different when he's talking about worldview? I think that he means something quite different to the way that worldview is predominantly used in North America. Worldview as a term is not really used in the UK much at all. Um, so it's the kind of term that if you use worldview here, people kind of, their eyes glaze over or they look at you as though you're mad because um, there's obviously just one way to view the world and it's the kind of British secular common sense realist way. And if <laughs> you just use your mind properly, then you reach the same conclusions as everyone else in our homogenous society. Um, so people here don't really use that term much at all. Um, the only people who do tend to be Christians <laughs> who use it in quite a Christian way. Um, but in North America, it does get used a lot in quite a distinctive way that is not what Bavinck does with the term or what he means by that. Um, so we, so Corey and Gray and I translated that book a few years ago and it came out a couple of years ago with Crossway. And it was really interesting to watch the reception of the book, particularly amongst North American readers, because I think there were quite a few people who bought it thinking, Christian worldview, that sounds fantastic. This is exactly what I'm looking for. And it wasn't at all what they were looking for. Um, <laughs> and I think what they were looking for was worldview in terms of like a starting point that tells you what to do mm -hmm. and that answers big questions for you to do with like what school to send your child to or which political party to vote for um or you know that answers a lot of the culture war questions on the basis of the starting points that are there a priori from the beginning and Bavinck doesn't do that at all and that's not what he means by worldview actually for Bavinck worldview is the thing that emerges at the end of a process of learning Christian wisdom that you learn through asking questions that are really core questions in philosophical theology around what does it mean to to exist why am I here um, and, and what should I do with my life and, and how do I 
how do you approach thinking as well? So his book on Christian worldviews is about is about basic questions rather than basic starting points, and you really have to wrestle with the questions. And then what emerges at the end is that the idea of worldview is an accomplishment. It's something that you accomplish at the end of a process rather than being very neatly formed at the beginning. So. The people who read it and who had very fixed ideas in a North American context about worldview is, I think that some of them were quite disappointed in the book because it just wasn't <laughs> scratching where they were itching. But yeah. I think it's it's a completely different project. So for Baving, worldview is more like a map. So like you, so you you ask these questions about um, about being, about thinking, about acting, and then the result of answering those questions is that that you have something like a map. And then you use that to navigate your your world. And for Bavink, he's trying to uh, teach people how to navigate the modern world um, in a way that um, so his kind of diagnosis of the ills of the modern world are all to do with how the modern world sets up a concept of the self that really needs something that it, that it can't quite lay claim on to stop the self from really collapsing under the pressure that modernity puts on it and that thing that it needs is christianity um and the modern world itself is this fragmented fracturing place and um it can hold together and it can have a future and it can be a place that you can live in with um intellectual spiritual social existential satisfaction but it, that can only happen bavink argues through christianity and not Christianity as a rejection of the modern world, but as with Christianity as the thing that brings it all into some kind of harmony or order. Um, so his argument is that if, once you've answered these really important questions around um, like being, thinking, uh, and acting, then you have a map, in effect, that you then use to live wisely in the modern world. Um, but it's quite different to, I mean, that, well, it's very different to a lot of the worldview talk that you find in, particularly in, in North American Christian culture, the kind of Chuck Colson um, worldview approach that, that tends to dominate those conversations. So mm -hmm. um, Baving is doing something very, very different. I was going to ask this at the end, but I want to make sure we have sufficient time to talk about it. So what do you think if, if, if we transported him, if, time you know time travel is a real thing we bring him to today it's right now we're recording this it's march of 2021 what is he thinking what is he doing what is he teaching are there any distinctive areas that he is focusing on that he is going to make a major project out of that he didn't during his own context Sure. So at one level, this is an impossible question to answer as a historian, right? So, you know, you take someone who died 100 years ago and ask the question about what would they be doing today? So uh, you could only answer this question in an extremely speculative way. Lots of historians just wouldn't want to answer it. But I think it's quite a fun question to think through, even if you're using it to do good historical work, because it makes you think more about what you can say concretely about the person in their own time. So I'll try and answer the question that way. Um, in a way that's both speculative and historical, um, if that's possible. So um, what would Bavink be doing today? In the first place, I would say I'd like to answer the question in terms of what Bavink probably couldn't do today that he did in his own time, and that would probably necessarily make his life quite different. Um, so something that I try and shed new light on in the book is understanding Bavink's life as the life of a polymath. 
And that's something that's very much, well, it's very new and un, unknown to the English speaking world. And it's quite forgotten in the, in the Netherlands as well, precisely because we interact with him through his theological works and his works outside of what we conventionally see as the realm of theology mostly haven't been translated. So outside the Netherlands, they're just not known. And people aren't really aware of them unless they've read the biography now. Um, and in the Netherlands, they're just 100 years old. So people have forgotten about them because so much has happened in the century that's passed. But what you find in looking at Bavink's life is that he he was actually a polymath. Um, so as well as being this systematic, well, dogmatic theologian, he also made all kinds of key contributions to um, pedagogy, to um, psychiatry, or, or psychology, I should say, in a Dutch context. Um, he was a poet, he was a biographer, he was a journalist, a really prolific one, uh, that then led to him being a national newspaper editor for a couple of years. Uh, he was a pastor, he was a preacher, he was a, a travel writer and a voyager as well, when travel was a distinct kind of calling in society. Um, so he did so much stuff. Um, he was a Bible translator. I mean, it's The list of things that he did is really interesting and really long. And he didn't do that from a sense of like, purposelessness. It was actually incredibly purposeful in a way that shows us the mind of a polymath, um, a distinct kind of polymath who does all of these things because he has a grand vision of how it all fits together. And that actually takes us back kind of to the question on worldview as well. So he thinks that the Christian faith gives you the resources to hold all of the tensions and disparities of modern life together. And Bavink is a person whose intellectual energy and capacity, but also his life circumstances, enabled him to try and do lots of, or move in all these different directions within the modern world at, at more or less the same time, in one lifetime. And that's really unusual. Um, in the present day, polymaths are, you know, there, there are polymaths out there, but I think it's probably harder for polymaths or people who have that um, inclination <clears throat> um, to live it out nowadays for various reasons. I think it's because academic life is, <clears throat> pardon me, is really exceptionally specialized now. So we sometimes have people who come to, to our school in Edinburgh to do a second PhD uh, in theology, and they've done a PhD in something else. And um, But those people are, you know, they're a, a really rare breed. Uh, the, the people who have the opportunity and the motivation and the life circumstances that allow you to get you know, qualified to a certain degree that you can start to make scholarly contributions in more than one discipline. Um, that's really, really rare. And the idea that you could have that kind of expertise in a third discipline, um, you know, that's that's even rarer still. Um, so that, and also, you know, just the kind of structures that we have in terms of social structures, economic structures, um, and the, the way that education works nowadays, there just there aren't that many people who are true polymaths now. There were more of them in the 19th century. And if you go back century by century, I think they're probably they increase in number again, just because this, the social setting um, um, kind of allows for one person to aim at multiple tasks at a high level. Um, so Bavink does all of that, and, I th and that gives his life its essential character. Um, could Bavink do that today if he were around, you know, if, if he'd been zoomed forward 100 years and had to live his life now? I'm not sure that he could be a polymath. But I think that's more that, that's just kind of a sad feature of our age um, and of the fragmentation of our age where um, if people have one life that 
you know, involves being involved in lots of different areas of life professionally, let's say, that's usually just because um, we have particular like market factors and economic factors that make careers a bit, a bit fragile. And, you know, you might lose your job and then you have to retrain in something else. But, you know, someone who intentionally does all of these things because he thinks they'll hold together and that that teaches you something about Christianity and the modern age, that would be much harder. So I think his life would be very, very different. Um, so it wouldn't look like um, the Herman Bavinck of 100 years ago. I think, he, you know, he w- I can imagine him still having the same intellectual commitments that would say all of these things can be held together. But he would probably be a person who has to pay a mortgage and who's a theology professor and who devotes his whole life to one particular track and, and practice. And then in theory, he talks about how Christianity holds all these things together. Um so I think that I guess his life would probably look like that in terms of what from his life could transfer and actually be practiced today. This isn't necessarily something we had discussed talking about, but who who are some of the like names, you know, either theologians or philosophers that we could associate with Bavink, whether that be someone who maybe deeply influenced Bavink um, and his thought, or maybe some of uh, the folks that that he would have been interacting with or debating with um, through writing. Mm-hmm. Indeed. So, if you're thinking of major influences, um, I think I mean his his father as a pastor. He's not a well known name now, but um, he was he was pretty well known in the Netherlands as a as an, an engaged preacher and a kind of pastoral figure. Um, he, I mean, he's the the immediate household influence in getting his son into theology and giving him a confidence that. The Reformed faith answers the questions of the modern age. Bavink inherits that from his father. Um, but in terms of influences of people that he had read but never met because they died long before, um, I mean, Augustine, yeah, Bavink is a, is a Christian in the Western tradition, so Augustine looms large over his whole life and project um, and is frequently cited. And I think that we're in, within the realm of Bavink studies, we are now developing a much keener appreciation of the sense in which we can talk about Bavink as an Augustinian theologian, as a neo-Augustinian. And actually the whole um, approach that Bavink takes to understanding culture and the world and redemption is a thoroughly Augustinian account in terms of um, what evil is, for example, or a doctrine of creation, a doctrine of nature, and a doctrine of grace. So Augustine is huge um, in terms of medieval theology and Bonaventure. So if you look at how he reads the medievals, um, he tends to see um, like kind of Duns Scotus uh, on one side and Thomas Aquinas on the other, but with Bonaventure as the really good take in the middle. Um, so Bonaventure is a really significant influence that gets lost a bit in how people read Bavink and on medieval theology. Um, um, in terms of theology after that, I mean, Calvin is just as a massive, massive influence and is, is, is cited so often in the reform dogmatics. And I mean, he, he engages with Calvin throughout his whole, his whole life, actually, as a theologian, right up until the very end. Um, after that, um, I think Schleiermacher is a subtle but really important influence. Um, so uh, Corey Brock, again, my former PhD student, wrote a really superb dissertation on Bavink's reception of Schleiermacher, um, where, you know, if you if you just look at the the number of interactions with Schleiermacher and Bavink, 95% of them will be quite negative and critical. But 5% or something like that is really appreciative. And um, those the appreciative comments are really significant in terms of um, Schleiermacher um, 
introducing new things to theology that have gone on to influence everyone who comes after uh, across all traditions. So all theology after Schleiermacher is different. And that also includes Bavinck's theology. And that's to do with um, with the interaction between theology and psychology um, and with theology as, or I guess with Christians realizing that theology is a, what he calls a consciousness theology, that it's a, the task of the thinking human mind and that that's quite different to thinking about or talking about God's thoughts, um, even if it's a, a response to God's thoughts as revealed by God. Um, so Schleiermacher then, and he sees Schleiermacher actually as forming part of a lineage with Calvin and Augustine before that. So Corey's book did a superb job of showing us that. Um, within his own more immediate context, um, Abraham Kuyper, a huge influence. So he's a couple of decades uh, or so older and um, blazes a new path forward for um, revisiting Calvin and using the orthodox resources of the Reformed faith to answer modern questions. So I think what he learns from from Kuiper is that um, you can actually drive orthodox Reformed theology forward by, by expansion um, rather than, um, I guess, radical revision. So it's not that to move it forward, you know, you keep the language and you give it entirely new meaning. You actually keep what you've got because it's great. But what you've got is also significant enough and expansive enough to grow and to answer the questions that are new to your own age. So you don't just talk theologically as though we're still in the 16th century in Geneva and can read nothing new and say nothing new. You can take what they have and you can develop it and answer modern questions. Um, so he learns that from Kuiper in, in lots of profound ways. Um, and I can name one other really significant influence. Um, it's a man called Abraham Kuhnen, who was his de facto doctoral supervisor. And Kuhnen's interesting because he was a higher critic. So he was actually an Old Testament professor. Um, so he was theologically uh, really liberal. And Bavinck was very conservative. But um, he taught Bavinck irenicism, um, understanding your intellectual opponents faithfully and not bearing false witness against them. And he taught Bavinck that you can't ever really hope to persuade people if you straw man them and if they hear your presentation of them and it's not anything that they would recognize, then you've lost the you've lost the cause already. So um, Kuhnen was, a, was an extremely um, ironic figure and a brilliant scholar as well. So if you look at the, the way that Bavinck goes about his task of writing and documenting and arguing persuasively and carefully, he actually learns that from this liberal mm. Old Testament scholar who ended up supervising his dissertation because his actual supervisor was just old and disinterested. <laughs> yeah, that last point is probably good for us to remember in the age of Twitter, uh, <laughs> for mm. sure. And the point about yep. Flaremacher, I mean, you know, you could disagree with someone 95% of the time, but you still can uh, learn something from them as well. Um, so I, this is a huge question, and I know with the amount of knowledge that you have about Bob Inc., I'm sure you have a lot to say here, but what, what would you say are some of his most lasting contributions um, for us today? And, and maybe as kind of an add on to that, what do you think his, is his, his most unique contribution that he's left for us? Hmm. Um, well, I think his legacy is primarily centered on his reform dogmatics, obviously. So that, that was his intended magnum opus. And he thought that he was I mean, he was quite and in the humblest kind of way he was also privately quite self-confident about it that he thought that he had really devoted his life to something and achieved something major that was I mean, he called it the theology needed by our age 
So the, the great need of the modern age was an account of Christian theology that was thoroughly grounded in scripture and that could take you on a tour through how you get from the text of the Bible to um, the doctrine that you need to articulate in your own day and age. Um, but how you get there, not by ignoring history, but by passing through it. So an, an exceptionally well-detailed account of the history of, of Christian thoughts and the challenges that it faces in lots of different periods of its history and the ways that the best interpreters of that thought have articulated it in their own days. So you're constantly standing on the shoulders of giants um, with the ground beneath your feet together, always being scripture. Um, and that, I mean, I think when you look at, I guess, when you look at the history of people writing dogmatics in his period, um, he's the only one we remember from the Netherlands today. And his dogmatics, you know, they're translated into like in Korean, they're being they're in Chinese, Portuguese, English, um, they're being translated into Russian at the moment. Uh, and people who are not within his Dutch reform camp read the dogmatics and uh, engage with that and think that, that it's really worthwhile. And I think that's, that is a, quite a reliable marker of a of a great work that people read it voluntarily um, even if they're not obliged to by their own tradition or because this is the great you know teacher that their particular school was based on or something like that so people actually go out of their way to engage with it so i think he has succeeded in doing that and he has given us a great work in theology um, so the dogmatics itself is, is a bit of a gold mine for us to to treasure and to dig down into and we're benefiting from that increasingly as people more people read his work more thoughtfully so that that itself is a is a is a great resource to leave behind and a great contribution i do think that the his example um in terms of his own life is also uh it, it's an accomplishment and it's a legacy to leave behind that's also like in part of why I wanted to write a biography that I thought would show this. Um, so Bavink was, uh, we've already mentioned it a couple of times, he was a really ironic person. Um, and I think that he, he the, the life that he lives is so fascinating because as I mentioned before, he actually sustains um, friendships in person with a lot of the leading lights of his age, intellectually and politically, and manages to show that that you can have really good disagreements with people and you can have friendships that you see as sincere and loyal and beneficial, but that are also what, what he would call critical friendships. And Bavink thought that um that your that your intellectual and personal and spiritual growth will always be stunted pretty badly if you live in an echo chamber. And, you know, so Bavink was quite aware of this in that he spent two decades of his life in, in a really small town uh, when he was in his um, late 20s, his 30s, um, and then early into his 40s. You know, he, he lived in a small conservative town working at a seminary where everyone was part of his denomination. And you know, the more that you read his interactions with people from that period, he was just very aware that he was around people who largely agreed with him on all the fundamentals all the time. And... Um, he felt like he needed more than that. He needed to be around people as friends, but also as conversation partners who didn't agree with him on any of the basics. Mm -hmm. um, and he thought that if you never have that, 
your thinking becomes sloppy, you become less effective also as a, an advocate of the Christian faith in a secularizing world. Um, so he thought that you do need to get out there, but he thought that you could do that without being a horrible person. You could actually do it and be a really good, faithful friend to people who don't agree with you or who are in different political camps. Um, and Bavink was, I think he was quite aware that he he lived in a time of um, hostility across um, political boundaries, religious boundaries in the Netherlands that actually, it's quite interesting when you look at him on, when he went to America on his first trip, the thing that surprised them so much about America was that uh, he said, there are all these Democrats and Republicans and they're really civil to each other, unlike in the Netherlands across political party boundaries. And they, <laughs> they both think that you can be a Christian and be in either party. No one denies each other a place in, in heaven just because of you know, the other one being a Democrat or a Republican. And in the Netherlands, everything is so polarized and divided. People treat each other really um, like in inhospitable ways, in uncivil ways. And um, so Bavink, when you look at him on Dutch culture, he finds it hard um, to be in a culture where people just don't talk to each other. People don't like being friends with people who are different. Um, and where ideological differences become chasms that are uncrossable for most people and in that context he actually works really hard to um to befriend people who are different and to sustain lifelong conversations with some of them so his best friend or one of his best friends uh, who features quite prominently prominently in the biography was a man called christian snukrochronia and he is as different to bavink on pretty much every level, as you could imagine. Um, Bavink was from this new middle class. Um, Snukrochonia was a double-barreled aristocrat. Bavink was from a conservative reform denomination. Snukrochonia's father was from a mainstream, well, he was from the mainstream Dutch Reformed Church. And, uh, you know, Bavink was from a very uh, kind of pious conservative family as well. Um, Snukrochonia's father was a pastor who had abandoned his wife with another woman and fled to London and then had Christian and that really controversial second relationship um and they met as students at university so bavink's this young pious student snookerhonia was ultra skeptical bavink goes on to become a pastor in a conservative denomination um snookerhonia goes on to convert to islam uh, so their lives are on completely different tracks um and yet that's one of bavink's most significant long-term friendships um that you know the develops first when they're students and then goes on until Bavink dies. Um, and that idea itself is so countercultural to us now, the idea of a critical friend. Because um, I think for a, a lot of the time for us, 100 years on, the idea of someone who really critiques you and doesn't share any of your basic assumptions, um, well, that's the opposite of a friend, right? The friend is the person who thinks like you and looks like you and says the things that you think as well and who echoes all of that back to you. Um, so I guess the more I got to read Bavink in terms of his life and letters and friendships, um, the more I saw there's actually, there's a legacy here that is itself an accomplishment um, that we really need nowadays. Um, mm. So I think that's a, you know, if, you, if you, you could think of accomplishment in terms of books and ideas and so on, but personal story really matters as well. And that's why you write a biography. And I think that aspect of his life is itself a, a remarkable feat. Yeah, that's awesome. And I feel like that's just a good uh, piece of advice for all of us, because the way you're describing the Netherlands back then, it seems like at least in America, that's what it is like now. We made it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, and the UK as well, uh, to a certain degree, too. 
So that that's fascinating. And you know, you you mentioned earlier on how he's building these friendships, like you mentioned these critical friendships with almost theological enemies to some degree. And so when he's writing against them, he almost has this context of like I know I'm going to be generous and kind to their own position. And so that made me start to think, did did he have any friends who were credo baptists? Um, what was his thought on that? You know, I, I've read his stuff on baptism, on the covenant of grace, those types of things. Uh, would is he favorable towards them, or are they? Could they be part of the reform movement, even though they deny some central tenets like that? Because me and Brandon are Baptists, obviously we have a stake in this. I want to be reformed, capital R. But if if you cut me out of the party, I guess I got, don't have a seat yeah. at the table. It is what it is. <laughs> yeah. Um. He does have. He does have personal interactions with actually uh, Southern Baptists. Um, oh, now you put me on the spot. So there's one guy, I, I mentioned him in the biography. He was a professor of New Testament. Um, and he was a Southern Baptist um, in Louisville. Um, Is it the famous one who like to, goes to Harvard afterwards? Um, oh, what's his what's name? A.T. Robin- Robertson? Yes, yes, okay. that's the guy. So he was in touch with Bavink and, and he was looking f- for someone to help him translate his famous, it was like a Greek grammar or something like that, to translate it into Dutch. And um, then enlist Herman Bavink's help. And Bavink engages with him by letter, very happy to help. Um, so he does have those kinds of engagements. Um, but I think, you know, for... And, and there were Baptists in in the Netherlands in that period, um, but I think, you know, the, if you look at it within his own immediate context, um, that was such a minority view, um, in a in a huge pedo Baptist world, the Dutch Reformed world, that's really you know a bubble, you know, a world within itself, um, and where infant baptism is taken so seriously, um, you know, where the expectation is that you're your baby is baptized on the first Sunday after your baby is born. Um, so it's just such a, a, a huge deal and a given as well. Um, and where you don't have, like, like so I'm, a, I'm a Presbyterian, and, and obviously, so then in a pedo-Baptist denomination in Scotland. Um, but my denomination has loads of people who are credo-Baptists who are members, and that's quite a normal thing in my denomination. Um, so you have some families and a congregation who do bring their children for baptism and others who don't. Um, historically, I think through the influence of Spurgeon in Scotland, actually, even amongst Presbyterians, but um, but that's that would be kind of unthinkable to Dutch Reform people in Bavink's denomination in his era. That you know that, that those two things would overlap so much within a Reformed denomination. So I think in terms of his own imagination, that's just something that's quite far off in the first place. Um, so I'm just not, I, I don't think that, you know, he really had to think through the kind of questions that I do, for example, as a theologian of my denomination, um, you know, can you have two completely different takes on that sacrament in one denomination? How does that work, um, in terms of polity or sacramentology or church discipline or pastoral care? There are all those kinds of questions that you have to think through. If a bunch of Baptists want to be part of your Peter Baptist congregation, um, that, but that just wasn't an issue in Bavink's day. So I think that if you're looking for those kinds of engagements, it, it tends to be people that he engaged with in North America. And then, of course, when he traveled to North America, he was there twice. But, um, you know, he's being taken around by 
Presbyterians and Dutch Reformed people because those are his immediate connections. Um, so, but I think that A.T. Robinson is his most direct contact with a, a Baptist um, of, of of note, I guess, in the states, and it seems really cordial. Um, so, before we let you go, I'd like to get you to recommend a few resources, uh, if you would, for us. So, I know there's it seems like there's a lot going on uh, with his work being translated. Into, translated into a, a number of languages and stuff, but um, what are some, maybe some new things that are coming out? Um, maybe this being translated into English or maybe other books about him. Obviously we have uh, discussed your biography. We talked about the reform dogmatics and the Christian worldview book. I believe there's an ethics mm-hmm. book that was just translated, but what else should we keep an eye out for? Yep. Um, so if you're interested in reading Bavink, Bavink himself was very aware of, how he wanted his work to to reach people at different levels. Um, so the dogmatics was intended for seminarians, people with a theology degree, pastors, and theologians. So it's amazing that it's had such an impact, actually, at a more popular level. Um, but it wasn't intended for that. So he wrote another book um, called Magnalia Dei, or the English translation is The Wonderful Works of God. And that was aimed at people who have a college level degree but not in theology and that's that's out in english and it's a stunning book it is it's in one volume it's the chapters are all really short beautifully translated devotional in character and really enriching theologically so that's that's a fantastic book and i I really can't recommend it highly enough um but he also wrote another version so that the wonderful works of god is like a one volume version of his dogmatics then at a more popular level but he wrote a third version of it that was intended for high school students or for like first year university students. And it's called, so the Dutch translation is something like, um, like guidebook and instruction in the Christian religion. That's how you would translate it. So it's not the catchiest title, but that has just been translated into English by one of my former PhD students, Cam Clossing, who's now a theologian in Australia and one of my current PhD students, Greg Parker. So that is coming out at some point with Hendrickson. Hmm. So it's like Wonderful Works of God, but uh, at a different level still. Um, there's another book that that Corey Gray and I are translating um, this year, and that is uh, Bavink's book, Christian Scholarship. So it's a companion volume to Christian Worldview, and uh, which we published with Crossway. So we're publishing Christian Scholarship with Crossway as well. Um, the original Dutch title is, is Christian Science, but annoyingly, so so disappointing that we can't call it christian science because that's really you know bavink's trying to recover the idea that knowing or uh, sciencia is something that mm-hmm. you can do christianly and that, that you know in dutch you don't use the term science just for the natural sciences you use it for all higher reflective knowing including in the humanities but anyway so in english we have to call it christian scholarship so thanks christian science movement um <laughs> so that's that that'll be coming out at some point and that's a really fascinating book because it's bavink's account of i mean i guess it's it's how to love god with the life of the mind um and how to be a thinking person is is something that, that we're all called to do for the glory of god so you should approach your education um in a Christian way. And it's, it's kind of like with Christian worldview, you know, it's not like, like three or four starting principles. Again, it's a map for what do you need to think through in order to learn that you can approach all of your thinking 
in a way that is thinking before the face of God and for God's glory. So we're working on that this summer, and it's a it's a really great book. It's quite a short book, but it's it's really impactful. And one other thing to keep an eye out for is, um, so it's a project that I was working on at the start of this year that I just finished, which is translating all of the correspondence between Bavink and his friend Snooker Hronje, the Muslim convert. Mm. Um, so they we have their letters from their student years right until Bavink dies. Um, they were published in Dutch quite a few years ago um, in kind of an annotated form. So I've just finished translating them and footnoting them in English, and I'm working on an, an introductory essay now. Uh, so we've, we're just about to submit that to a publisher. So um, hopefully there'll be some good news in the coming weeks about about it being accepted and, and, and it coming out in English. Um, but they're really fascinating letters. Um, they're a window into a lifelong conversation between a really profound Christian thinker and a really thoughtful, profound non-Christian um, but who are friends and who have a, just a very open, honest, respectful, affectionate friendship that lasts a lifetime. So they're well worth reading. Um, they're again, they're just so they're so rare. They're such a striking example of what we've lost. Mm. So that's awesome. that'll, hopefully that'll come out next year. Yeah. Now for our listeners who want to follow your work and stuff, you, you've got Twitter. I know yep. you, yep. I just Googled and I think you have a website. Do you have yeah. anything else? I do. So I have a blog, a WordPress blog, um, James Eglinton with one G um, uh, dot wordpress.com, which I add things to periodically. Um, so yeah, probably I mean, the stuff that I put out, I generally link to from Twitter anyway. So if you follow me there, um, Dr. Dr. Uh, James Eglinton, you can find me there. And it's probably the best way for people to keep up with what I'm doing. Awesome. And those who are interested in wanting to study, do PhD stuff, are you taking PhD students? Are there other places they can learn and study about Bavincat? Uh, yeah, I, I'm always really happy to hear from people who want to do PhDs on on Bavinck or Dutch theology or Reformed theology more generally. Um, I have a, it, it's amazing how much things have turned around in Edinburgh in terms of Bavinck studies, because when I did my PhD there, I was the only person working on Dutch Reformed theology or, or Bavinck. And, um, but now we've got this really great community of scholars who are working together on on Bavinck and Gerhardus Voss and, and working on that Dutch Reformed tradition. Um, so it's great. You know, we have a, like a, a Dutch doctoral seminar that, that I run every week where I teach the students to learn to read Dutch. And then, um, then we have an advanced reading group after that. And we work through all kinds of fascinating texts and sustain each other's intellectual growth through our conversations all the time. So it, it's, I think, a really great place to be to, if you want to study Bavink. So I'm always interested in hearing from people who are interested in that. Great. Well, we, we commend all your stuff. I think it's fantastic. You know, I don't know many people who are retrieving and doing such awesome historical work and also very committed to the local church, like I've seen that you are. So I think um, I just commend all your stuff widely. I think yeah, anybody's listening, if, if you see something that's got his name on it, or I guess one of your P, any of your PhD students, it seems like all your PhD students are great guys, too. So yeah, read all their stuff, work. too. Um, we commend it to you. I think this has been a great interview as well. I, I love the idea about the critical friendships. I think that's that's awesome. So um, check out his stuff. Go get it. And uh, for those who are listening, you've been listening to the only analytic Baptist and confessional podcast on the planet. And we thank you for tuning in. 
need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.